All right, well, we are continuing uh, in our series uh, looking at the Old Testament book of Zechariah. We'll be looking at the second half of chapter 9, uh, verses 9 through 17. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them, as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine, the young women. I have a unique gift, and my family considers this gift an annoying habit. I have this ability, while watching certain movies, to be able to quote most of the lines right before the actors say them. But this gift only works if we're watching the Back to the Future trilogy or episodes four, five, and six of Star Wars. And my gift really isn't a gift. It just comes from watching these movies dozens and dozens of times. Maybe you have this ability too. Maybe you can quote your favorite author or favorite poem, quote, lines from a movie. Hopefully, you can quote a few passages of Scripture. When we quote someone, it's to show that we know what they said or to point to their authority. The book we are studying, Zechariah, is quoted often in the four Gospels. Our passage today is referenced in each of the Gospels, in Mark and Luke, and then directly quoted in Matthew and John. 
It's quoted as Jesus rides into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. As Jesus did this, he fulfilled the prophecy that we read in verse 9. He showed that he was the king, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. When we read this prophecy and then read these accounts in the New Testament, from our perspective, we can see that it's Jesus who fulfilled the prophecy. But when these words were first spoken by the prophet hundreds of years before, how did the nation of Israel receive it? And how did Jesus specifically fulfill this prophecy, and what does it mean for us? The first thing that we see about this king in verse 9 is how people would respond to his arrival. Verse 9 actually begins with a command to celebrate the arrival of the king. The command is to rejoice greatly and shout out loud at the king's arrival. So joy and shouting and celebration was to, to mark his coming. If you've been to a professional football game or baseball game, it's, it's the moment when the team runs onto the field. Everybody is on their feet. Everybody's screaming and shouting. That's what the prophet envisions here as the king arrives. Deafening noise and enthusiastic celebration. Second, verse 9 says that this coming king would be righteous. That word righteous in its simplest form means right. One who lives rightly before God. One who obeys God in everything. The Bible uses this word frequently. The Bible uses this word to describe all of humanity's condition in Romans 3. It says that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. The Bible's assessment of all of humanity is that no one who has ever lived or will ever live is right with God. No one has the capacity to obey God fully. No one will be declared righteous. And yet this prophecy tells of a coming king who will be the exception to Romans 3. He will be a righteous king. And not just that this king will rule and reign fairly, not just that he will be a good king, but he will be a perfect king. Who he is would be righteous. Not just a righteous reign, but righteous himself, fully obedient to God in all things. Third, not only will this king be righteous, but verse 9 says, having salvation is he. This king in his coming, he will bring with him the power and the ability to fight for and deliver God's people from their enemies, to save them. He will bring with him the power to do all that is required to defeat 
the enemy and save his people. Fourth, this king will come with specific character. Character that will will set him apart from all other kings. So the people were to be looking for this this king who was righteous and powerful. In a sense, a, a perfect person with power to save them. What would he be like? What would his heart be like? What would his, his temperament toward the people be like? You see, people that we know that are powerful and, and have authority, we don't always observe them to have good character. People that are, are powerful tend to think they're, they're better than everyone else. They tend to be prideful and unapproachable. But verse 9 says that this righteous and powerful king would be humble. I'm sure that may have come as a surprise as that was first heard. See, the people were used to kings who would rule for their own power, for their own fame, for their own riches. Kings who would display their power, who would, who would show it in fancy ways, riding on a horse surrounded by noblemen and soldiers, causing a big uproar and celebration. But this king would be different. He would come humbly and riding on a donkey. This was to, to signify a a lowly status, meaning that this king would not try to elevate himself above the people, but he would be able to sympathize and identify with them in their weaknesses and struggles. And so, think for a moment about what this verse is saying, describing this this king who is perfect and righteous who comes with power to save, but yet comes humbly, comes bringing joyful celebration. Was there ever a person? Was there ever a king that fit this description? Yes, and his name is Jesus. And he's the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. Jesus is the only person in all of history to fit this description and to fulfill this prophecy. Turn for a moment to Matthew chapter 21. This is one of the passages in the New Testament where our passage from Zechariah 9 is quoted. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, 
and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! See, not only did Jesus fit this prophecy, but he fulfilled it. A lot of times when we read prophecy in the Old Testament, we get some sort of image or some sort of of picture that, that represents or points to Christ in some way. But here, this one's, this one's kind of easy. We, we have the prophecy that literally said, Jesus will ride on a donkey, and then he literally does it. But this prophecy is, is more than Jesus riding in on a donkey. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, he fulfilled everything we read in Zechariah 9, 9. So let's look at that. The prophet tells of this joyful celebration surrounding the arrival of the king. Now, the worldly circumstances around Jesus' birth didn't seem to call for a celebration. He was born to a poor, unmarried woman who claimed that her pregnancy was the result of the Holy Spirit's activity. And her fiancé corroborated her story, and not many people believed them. Jesus was born in an obscure stable, placed in an animal's feeding trough, and yet his birth brought a wild celebration. In the book of Luke, we we read the accounts of the people that celebrated his arrival. When his mother Mary was told she will have a son, she erupts in this song rejoicing in God her Savior. John the Baptist, who was still in his mother Elizabeth's belly, he jumps for joy when he hears Mary's voice who's carrying Jesus inside her. When Jesus was born, this incredible gathering of angels appear to and sing over some pretty scared shepherds. They announce the birth of Jesus, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. An old man named Simeon, who was waiting for God's salvation, When he sees the baby Jesus, he takes him in his arms and blesses God in a loud voice, saying, My eyes have seen your salvation. Matthew tells of wise men who saw a star and followed it to Jesus. And when the star stops over the place where Jesus was, the wise men rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
And finally, in the text we just read in Matthew 21, we see the people shouting and celebrating Jesus' arrival to Jerusalem, cutting branches from trees and laying their coats along the road, celebrating and shouting, Hosanna in the highest. And every single person who comes to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they rejoice and celebrate at the King that God has sent to save them. This coming King, King Jesus, He fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah 9, and His arrival was met with shouting and singing and jumps for joy and celebration from unborn babies to shepherds, from common people to the angels in heaven. This was a joyful celebration. Second, Jesus, through his life, demonstrated that he was the righteous king. Jesus was born under the law and lived under the law, perfectly obeying God in everything. He was the only person in all of history that could be called righteous because he never sinned. The author of Hebrews speaks of Jesus in chapter 7. It says that he is holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners. 1 Peter chapter 2 speaks of Jesus saying he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Even the testimony of those that interacted with Jesus, that, that didn't believe in him, shows his righteousness. When Jesus was on trial before Pilate, Pilate was, was a corrupt person who didn't have much reason to affirm Jesus' guiltlessness. He stands before the people and the religious leaders who are accusing Jesus and calling for his death, and he says, I find no guilt in this man. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that Jesus was righteous, that he was the only person to ever live perfectly before God. Third, not only does this prophecy say that this king would be righteous, but that he would bring salvation to his people. The phrase in Zechariah 9, 9, when it says, having salvation is he, means that this king will show himself as the one who saves. That's what Jesus did. He showed himself as the one who saves. His perfect life and sacrificial death provided all that we needed to be saved. But Jesus needed to be righteous in order to save us, and it's his righteousness that qualifies him to be our Savior. See, if Jesus was not righteous, he couldn't die for our sin. But because he was, he could take 
the punishment for our sin and lay His life down as the perfect sacrifice. We see this illustrated in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. The Apostle Paul is comparing Adam and the resulting fall with Christ. He says this, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This verse is saying that because of Adam's sin, he's the first man in that verse. Everyone born since was born a sinner. But Jesus, he's the second man in that verse. He is the new and better Adam. This verse says that because of his obedience, through his obedience, we are made righteous. Here's what that looks like. On the cross, our sin is placed on Christ. He takes the punishment for our sin. He experiences God's wrath. Therefore, our, our guilt is removed. But we still need to be righteous. We have no righteousness of our own. And so not only does Jesus take our sin, but his perfect record, his righteousness is credited to us. And so as God looks at us, he doesn't see us in our sin, but he sees us as if we have lived perfectly obedient to him because Christ's righteousness belongs to us. Jesus was qualified to be our Savior. Next, let's look at the heart and character of Christ. Picture for a moment a, a, a king riding into his kingdom. You might have in your mind a scene from a, a Disney princess movie. Right? There's, there's always this scene in a Disney princess movie where the, the king or the prince is riding into their kingdom. And they're on some fancy horse and they're in their finest clothes and they're surrounded by dancers and musicians and soldiers and noblemen and, and the people are, are lining the streets and screaming and celebrating. But this is a, a specific display when the king would do this. This was a display that meant to say, I'm not like you. I am great. I am powerful. I am wealthy, and I rule over you. It was meant to show reverence and fear and distance between the king and his people. And then we have Jesus. We have the one who the Bible tells us created everything we see and everything we can't see by his word. We have the one who, who the Bible tells us he holds life together by his power. Meaning that if he withdraws for a moment, hearts stop beating, planets stop spinning, gravity stops working, life ceases. 
Jesus, the one with all power, all rule, all authority, all wonder, all perfection. The one who owns every square inch of land on every planet in every galaxy. The one who could have arrived with millions of angelic beings that would terrify you. And he rides in on a borrowed donkey. And borrowed clothing off the backs of commoners draped on that donkey and on the road. In one sense, it's a, it's a pathetic way for a king to ride in. See, a worldly king wants to boast of their wealth and power. But Jesus wanted to show us something different. He wanted to demonstrate his humility and his lowliness. You see, unlike the kings of this world, Jesus laid aside his kingliness and chose to identify with his people. We see this in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. It says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." the creator of the universe, the one who holds the galaxies in his hand, was, was willing to lay aside his kingliness and become like his people. To become the king who would know temptation and suffering and misery. And this sets him apart from all other kings. But this idea, it's not just to communicate that Jesus acted with humility, but that his, his very heart, his very character is humble and gentle and lowly. Because of who Jesus is and what he experienced, it allows him to identify with us in what we experience. And it shows his heart for us as sinners and sufferers. In his excellent book titled Gentle and Lowly, author Dane Ortland, he, he masterfully draws out from Scripture this idea of Jesus' heart for us. What I found so helpful about this book is that Ortland confronts how we typically think about God's heart towards us. If, if you were to stop right now and answer the question, how does God feel about you? How does He feel about you right now? How would you honestly answer? But first, think back to this week. Think back to all you said, all you did, all you thought, all your failures, all your suffering. Maybe you would say, 
God's fed up. He's exhausted. He's disgusted with me. He's mad. His back is, is turned. He's shaking his head. He's uninterested. He's, he's disappointed. He's about ready to snap. When Jesus described his heart for us, his heart for sinners and sufferers. This is what he said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Here it is. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is telling us here that, that he's not like what we think, but he is gentle and lowly in heart. These are the, the same words we find in our prophecy of this, of this king who would come. Ortland, in his book, he comments on this. He speaks of of the gentleness of Christ. And he says this, Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, not reactionary, not easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. On Christ's lowliness, he says this, the point is saying that Jesus is lowly, is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus. Meaning that we can come to him wherever we find ourselves, in our sin and in our suffering, we can come to Him, and He is not going to turn us away, but He is going to receive us with open arms. You see, Jesus doesn't say, clean yourself up first, then come. He doesn't say, fix your mess first, then come. He doesn't say, get rid of your burdens first, then come. He just says, come. So take Jesus at his word when he says, come to me. He is the king who is gentle and lowly. You will find rest for your souls in him. We have seen that, that Jesus is this king. He is the righteous king. He is the one that has Come having salvation. He has shown his humility and his openness. The rest of the verses in this chapter, verses 10 to 17 in Zechariah 9, they, they speak to what the Lord will accomplish through this king's reign and the progress of his kingdom. Three quick things. First, this king is coming to bring peace and freedom. Verses 10 and 11, they speak of God removing the people's means to fight. 
says that God's going to cut off their, their chariots and their war horses and their bows. See, in the past, they had experienced victory and advancement of the kingdom by war. But when the king comes, the kingdom will no longer advance by military power. So Jesus didn't come to fight worldly battles and to expand worldly ta- territory, but as verse 10 says, he came to speak peace to the nations. Jesus' fight was not against the kingdoms of the world, but against the ultimate enemy of sin and death. Jesus came to win the ultimate victory by laying his life down and making peace between God and man through the shedding of his blood on the cross. That's what verse 11 is saying, as For you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. The shedding of blood here is the assurance of what is promised. When God would make a covenant with his people, it was sealed by the blood of an animal sacrifice. But this was ultimately pointing forward to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. His blood was spilt to establish a new covenant. And the result is freedom. Freedom from sin and death and peace with God. Second, this king brings with him a new battle plan. Verses 13 to 15, they they show God's people still engaged in battle And yet, ultimately, it is the Lord who is fighting for them. It says, For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. In these verses, we see the people are still engaged in battle, but the the point is that ultimately it is the Lord who is fighting for them. He is directing them. He is appearing over them and protecting them. After this prophecy, the nation of Israel, they, they still experience some military victory and freedom from their enemies. But ultimately, this was to point to a future fulfillment in Christ's victory over sin and death. But what about us today? Are we still called to fight? When Jesus came, he changed the battle plan. He was not coming to conquer kingdoms, but to conquer hearts. He was showing us that kingdoms and people are not the enemy. The true enemy is the enemy of our soul. It is sin and death. And so the new battle plan for us is to follow the example of our Savior King and use His weapons to fight. We're to model the way that Jesus advanced His kingdom. Right back to verse 9. 
He came as the righteous king. He came having salvation. He came humbly. So we are to take up these weapons. So we do this by pursuing righteousness, becoming more and more like our king, growing in knowing and loving him, knowing what he says, obeying his word, living a life that by his grace is pursuing righteousness. We're to also share what this king has done. We tell others of the joy of knowing this king who has salvation. Don't live life building yourself up. Live life to serve others through humility and sacrifice. Model this king's humble and gentle heart. Sympathize with others like our Savior. See this world as lost and needing to know the king who has come to save them. Finally, this king, he celebrates and blesses his people. Verses 16 to 17. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Through this king, God promises salvation, and he celebrates his people and blesses them and and calls them the, the jewels in his crown. Verse 17 envision, envisions God's people in enjoying his goodness and beauty and celebrating his blessing in their lives. And so in one sense, this chapter ends where verse 9 began, with joyful celebration with the king. See, this verse envisions people flourishing under the rule of this coming king. And we should see that there is, there is still a future aspect to this prophecy. That we are, we are not there yet. We are living with hope that one day this will be fulfilled when Christ returns. On that day, our salvation will be complete. We will forever celebrate the Lord's goodness and His beauty as we live in His presence, enjoying His blessing as He celebrates us as the jewels in his crown. The king has come, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Obey the command of Zechariah 9.9. Celebrate the king. Rejoice and shout. Celebrate the king who came humbly, yet rules and reigns eternally with power to save you and to keep you forever. Come to him, know, and celebrate the king. Let's pray. Our Father, what a wonder 
our King Jesus is. We celebrate what he has done for us, who he is in his perfect life, his victorious death for our sin and his glorious resurrection and the hope that we have of his return one day. May our hearts be moved to come to this king and to celebrate all that he has done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.